is April 29th, 2012. Our message is called Zedekah. This uh, would be spelled T-Z-E-D-E-K-A-H. It is a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word means righteousness. And it is uh, specifically used as acts of righteousness or righteous acts. Turn with me to 1 Peter 2. We're going to be in the ninth verse. Somebody say there when you get there. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 9. But you are a chosen people. There was a time period where that phrase uh, only related to the descendants of Abraham, uh, specifically the 12 tribes of Israel that came from Jacob. But Peter applies that phrase to the community of believers worldwide. You were chosen when you were called to be a part of Messiah. This makes you special. And with that privilege comes responsibility. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. What are you supposed to declare? Praises, friends. Our lives are supposed to declare praises because He has taken you from darkness and put you in light. This tells a story. It tells a message that's been going on since Genesis 1. That God will speak into darkness and create light. That He will reach into your situation and He can change it. Your life is supposed to declare that story. When we meet people in darkness, understand you have a job to do. Your job is through the deeds of your life, through the words of your mouth, through the attitude of your heart, to show them that they can be brought from darkness and into light. Once you were not a people, but now you were a people. The people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. Friends, it is our job. It's not marketing for the church. It is our job in the displaying of our actions that have been prompted by our faith to show the world something is possible. It is possible to move out of darkness and into light. Amen. And you are the miracle that proves it. You are the empty grave that shows Jesus is risen. Your life was full of death and now it is to be full of life. And even the pagans should take note of that. They should begin to ask you questions. Zeke, why do you live the way you live? Nolan, what is different about your life? They should want to ask because they see something. Not because you're good looking. Not because you're talented. Not just because you're the best at what you do. But because there is a hope. There is a powerful, godly, glorious hope which your life is centered around that they don't feel. And they should be drawn to it like moths to a flame. Our faith is supposed to display deeds. It is a tragedy. tragedy. It is something that is sad beyond description that our theology has worked out of our lives, the displaying of deeds. It has ridiculed them as adding to the cross or working for salvation. None of these things are true, friends. The saved show that they are saved by their actions. Amen. If that doesn't sit well with us, 
then we have heard too many mamby-pamby preachers stand up and lie to us about inward feelings. And inward feeling is only good to the extent that it shows up on the outside of your life. I'd like to read to you from Acts 26. You can write it down, but I'm not going to wait for you to get there. It's Acts 26 and verse 19. This is Paul when he's speaking to King Agrippa. It says, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and to the Gentiles also. Before I get to the rest, if we started in Damascus, if we preached to those in Jerusalem, then those in Judea, then to all the Gentiles, that's the world, friends. This is, Paul is about to summarize what he preached, not just to Jew, but to Gentile alike. Not just in his hometown, but in the entirety of the world. And listen to what he says. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. You show me a man that has no deeds that have proved out his repentance, and I defy you to show me in the Bible why you call him saved. Because the Bible is very, very clear. Our salvation shows up in the things that we do. Our repentance bears fruit. We are called to the obedience of the faith that produces something. In Romans 1.5, Paul said he calls Gentiles to the faith that produces obedience. Real faith produces real fruit. It can be seen. It can be measured. In fact, it is the testimony to the world that God called you out of darkness and into light. Sometimes it's as small as a sincere, joyful smile on your face in the midst of a terrible circumstance. But there ought to be something, friends. How dare we say we've been saved a decade, two decades, a decade and a half, whatever it is. I don't care if it's been 30 minutes. There ought to be something that your own mother can see. Amen? Amen. My closest friends thought I was crazy. They waited for the phase to pass. It never did. The very first class that I attended in high school after being born again the previous night, my teacher asked me what had happened to me. The very first thing. Every peer that I had took note that something was different. Now, they didn't expect it to last. I'd been a hypocrite before. But they knew something was different. This is what salvation is like. I'm going to encourage you to be bold, to make your life count for something. To declare into the darkness, to look into the face of the darkness and laugh at it and say, my life is proof that you can be overcome. My life is proof that the devil has not succeeded. My life is proof that there's a harvest out there and, and we're going to go get the rest and you can't stop me. I'm going to encourage you to look into the face of what is darkness and not deny that it's there, but laugh at it and say, my God is bigger. Yes. Sometimes the church has hidden inside its four walls. They built a moat around it. They said, only if you clean up your life can you come in. I say, I'm not worried about you getting me dirty. If you hang around me long enough, your life is going to get clean because I have crossed over. Friends, there, there, there is no more wiffle waffling, no more waging war against this soul. This soul is waging war against the powers of this earth. Amen. Come on now, is anybody out there with me? Yes. yes. Amen. I want to show you some ways in which this happens. But first, so that you don't think I'm on theologically shaky ground, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. In the West, we have to reason out everything. In the East, they simply look for evidence. Oh, I would like to live in the East. 
But praise God, I get to be here with you, and we will learn how to accept what this Eastern book is telling us and live it out in a Western world, and this is proof that we've been brought from darkness into light. Are you in Luke 3? Look at the seventh verse. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, how about that call to repentance, huh? I mean, any, anybody hear a champion statement in there? Anybody hear him just say, Oh, brothers, we have God's best for you. You know, come on front and you, you can be a champion. You can go to Six Flags in the heavenly realm and eat ice cream. This is not what he said. Listen to what he said to them. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. It is not your birthright that has saved you. It is not your infant baptism that has saved you. And it is not a warm, fuzzy prayer as a child at an altar that has saved you if there is no fruit in keeping with repentance. What our fathers battled in the Middle Ages of infant baptism, we battle today. Everybody and their grandmother has made a profession of faith, but there's been no fruit. There's been no change. There's been no life changed by the power of God, and we call it salvation. Billy Graham himself said if even 5% of everybody that answered an altar call in his meeting was saved, he would be surprised. That's what he said. This is because we've all learned to say yes with our mouth and no with our actions. Friends, the real gospel came forward and said, hey, you're wicked. And if you want to come to God, show it by doing something. You prove what your desire is by doing something. Now, they had a wonderful question because they're Jews. Look at verse 10. What should we do then? I love that. We would say, what can we believe? We would say, what, what's the doctrinal statement? Where do I sign? Can I put some checks beside it on a box so that, you know, I can get my USDA stamp Christian and I'll be good and we don't have to worry in church or squirm anymore? We answered one altar call, so never again. This is, this is kind of where American Christianity is. And I'm not picking on Americans. We also have some of the finest Christians in the world. But I am picking on the pastors, myself included, that have watered this down and made it about something other than what Jesus taught. He said, what should we do? What comes next? An answer. Isn't that funny? Go ahead and take out a black marker and highlight this verse in black ink so that you don't have to read it. Go ahead and just cut it right out of your Bible. You don't want to do that, do you? Because we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word. There's a nice theological term for We believe every word is inspired by God. We believe that, but then we ignore what it says. Look what he says. John answered, the man with two tunics should share. Amazing that the gospel begins with exactly what we tell the two-year-old. We have a choice today. Do we want to be 35-year-olds, 37-year-olds, or do we want to be two-year-olds? We have a choice. We can let the gospel speak to us about mature things, or we can let it start with the basics. And the basics of Christianity start with sharing what you have. You show me a selfish life, and I will show you a man that's never met Jesus. You show me a sacrificial life, and I will show you somebody that has laid hold of the deep concepts of God, even if they don't have a Bible in their own language. Because the gospel begins with sharing what God has given you, trusting Him, to give you what you need so you give away what you have. That is the beginning of trust. That is the beginning of the gospel. He called them broods of vipers and they said, what should we do? And he said, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. 
Come on, when has there ever been an altar call that you can remember that said, you want to be saved? Go share your food with somebody that doesn't have it. You want to be saved? Give away some of your clothes. You want to be saved? Do something that shows you trust God and that faith will be credited to you as righteousness. Not the deed, but the faith that produced the deed. Where is this today? It's woefully absent. And it builds huge churches because it's full of do-nothing Christianity. And, oh, I mean, all we have to do is intellectually ascend to an idea and build gymnasiums and hand out donuts. And we call it Christianity, but it is not changing the world. It's not even changing our neighborhoods. You know why it's not changing the world, not changing the neighborhood? Because it hasn't changed lives. It simply created members. The real gospel will fundamentally rework every area of your life. It will invade you like light invaded the darkness of the creation. It will begin to separate out what is of man and earthly origin and what is of the heavens and of God's origin. And it will bring an order to your life that says they will rule. They will rule and I'll walk through the darkness by His light. It will bring order to your life. It will let you take one day in seven and say, I know that you're God. I don't have to do anything today except acknowledge you. In fact, when I work, it tends to mess things up. I'm going to trust you today. Amen. If you don't have the one day, then praise God, start with a Sabbath attitude and let's declare some hours until our faith grows. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Saturday is, but that's another message. The reason that believers meet on Sunday today is because when this began, they met with their Jewish brothers on the Sabbath, the day God declared, and on Sunday they wanted to meet with each other. Like everything, we've whittled it down, haven't we? We have a two-day weekend, all right, but it's not so we can meet with our Jewish brothers on Saturday and then with each other on Sunday so that we can sleep or cut our grass or go get ice cream, whatever it is that we want to do. How different would your life look if one day out of every seven you did nothing except acknowledge how awesome God is? Yeah. Now I want to encourage you, there's not a faithful people on the planet, not the Jewish race, not anybody else that has ever truly kept the Sabbath. Because Sabbath is all about lordship. It's all about saying, Lord, I'll do what you want me to do today and nothing but what you want me to do today. And one day in every seven, that's going to be my sole focus. That's the sole focus of a believer every day. But do you have a monument on your calendar every day that you look at? We usually don't, do we? Listen to what he says. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more money than you're required to. Do you think that this is a different command than he told uh, the others about sharing? Uh, don't collect any more money than you're required to? Is this, is this the gospel according to tax collectors? See, a tax collector, he, he only has to make sure he doesn't extort people. But everybody else, they have to go share their feelings. They have to give away their food. Is that how you divide the work? Does one verse get divorced from the other verse? But how many of our commentaries, how many of us read a verse that says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and we're just sure that that one couldn't be talking to us? We divorce it from every other verse around it. Why do we do that? Well, because our preachers have told us all that's required of us is believe on the dotted line and throw some change in their plate. Make sure they're well fed. Make sure they, they have nice clothes. Make sure that they have the nicest car in the parking lot. Make sure that the pastor's taken care of and he'll be nice to you. But is that what the gospel is about? Is that how Jesus lived? 
I want to praise you, church, for a couple things. That doesn't happen very often, so you might want to take notes. I believe that many of you have grabbed hold of the sincere, truthful, pure, unabated, unabridged gospel. And with all of your heart are trying to apply it in your lives. Now in every crowd just like this one, no matter how big or small, there's a few that stand on the edge and they take some solace in being around those who do. <coughs> My whole heart's desire would be that every man, woman, and child in here would be willing to die for Jesus. But you know, you won't be willing to die for Jesus if you won't even share your tunic. So, well, I will, I will. Okay, when does will become I did? When does it become I did? How many years have you had to put it into practice? When did you? See, the people of faith could look back at the events of their lives and say, look what God did. Not promise of what they will do in the future. See, our righteousness is based on a promise that we will eventually do something that, of course, never happens. Their righteousness was based on my faith can be demonstrated in my actions. I've trusted God for these years. Look, He delivered me from the Amorite. Look, He provided for me in that famine. Look, I came to the Red Sea and I had a choice to run or to trust Him. And I trusted Him and we walked through on dry ground. Come on now, this is what a testimony begins to sound like. He goes on to talk to a soldier and he tells him not to deal falsely with people. Maybe the best example of this in the book of Luke that I could think of was in Luke 19. Please turn there. If I taught on Zacchaeus today in the kind of depth that I'd like to teach on Zacchaeus, we'd never get to the other issues. But I would like to show you salvation coming to a tax collector, a hated class of people. I'd like to show you how Jesus knows and says uh, right out front that he's born again. Watch this. This is Luke 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. This is beautiful because Jericho has always been symbolic of the world. It was the stronghold that Israel had to face when they crossed the Jordan. Its walls symbolized, its walls falling symbolized the collapse of the world system and giving way to the kingdom of God. So Jesus is passing through Jericho. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. If you were writing this in the King Eric vernacular, you could say he was a chief sinner. So Jesus is passing through the world and we have a chief sinner. Come on now, is this his story? Is this your story? Is this his story or is this every man's story? Yeah. Is this just his story or is this your story? If you have a problem calling yourself the chief among sinners, I'm going to be honest with you, you don't know yourself. Spend some time staring into the mirror and asking God about the righteousness of your deeds. He might say it's filthy rags. At least that's what he told Isaiah to tell us. The only thing that counts, friends, is what our faith has prompted us to do. This is credited to us as righteousness. Galatians 5.8 says it. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Love could be demonstrated in your actions. Come on now. Spence, do you believe Caitlin would, would believe that you loved her if you never spoke to her? If you never did anything for her? She did like every other woman, huh? She wants you to say it sometimes, doesn't she? Jim, how many times a day do you want to hear I love you? Come on. The funniest thing to me, and maybe the most frustrating thing in her life, is Jen will look over at me and she go, I love you. And I look at her and I say, good. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't that kind of hurt just a little bit, doesn't it? Don't it? I mean, it's like your email got bounced back. <laughs> I do it for fun, and I probably shouldn't. I'm going to repent right now, Jennifer. I'm the whole congregation. I'm sorry. I'm not going to do that anymore, okay? 
Okay. Hold me to it, elders. I'm trying. I can't make it any more public than that. For me, it's a way of saying, you need affirmation, don't you? And that's not wrong. That, that's not wrong. You know how we get affirmation from the Lord? We feel His approval on the actions, the deeds that we are carrying out in His name. You know what feels good? Feeding somebody. You know what feels even better than that? Taking care of a widow or an orphan. You know what feels fantastic? Seeing the prince of darkness fall from the life of someone no longer reigning in their life. See a drug addict set free. See a prostitute become a mother and a woman of God. You see somebody delivered from darkness and it feels good. It feels better than your 52-inch plasma screen TV. It feels better than your Mercedes. It feels better than the $2,000 suit. It feels better than whatever drug we're shooting in our veins, Christian or otherwise. It feels good because it's what you were designed to do. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Now, you may not think of yourself as wealthy, and I, I certainly don't think of myself as wealthy, but let me just tell you, if there's a hundred people from the countries of the world in the room, you are wealthy. When you walk up and you have more than one set of clothes, you're wealthier than almost everybody that I met in Kenya. You're wealthy. When you have clean water to drink as much as you want, you can bathe in it, friends. You can fill a bathtub laying it in frolic. You're wealthy. When you can heat that water and pour it from above your head, not even collecting it, letting it just run off of you, you're wealthy. I've been to a lot of places in the world this year. I've been in and out of at least 15 countries this year, right? Traveled enough this year to go around the world more than once. About two times. In most places that I've gone, they don't have those things. In Kenya, we showered in a bucket. And we laughed with the children. They said, your water falls from above you? I said, yeah. And they said, you don't collect it? No. No, at first I didn't know why we needed to collect it. Then I realized that they had to carry their water every day from somewhere else. It was precious. It was precious. We're wealthy. You got more than one car? Did, did you come in two cars today? Did a family come in two cars? Are you the only one on your street that owns a lawnmower and you all share? Or does everybody on your street own a lawnmower? Are you hearing what I'm saying? One town, everybody shared one machine to crush their names. Essential to life. One town, one machine. If it was America, everybody would have a machine for their oldest teenager. They'd have a machine for their wife and they'd have a machine for them. They would all be within a few feet of each other, but it would be mine. Right? Mine would be painted. It'd have some lights on it. And in some way, it would speak a subtle message. I'm better than you. Right? Isn't that really what our neighbors are doing when they pull up them in a car? Right? Isn't that really what we're doing when we make sure that the emblems on our clothes can be seen? Right? If your fashion statement has to do with the label being displayed, doesn't that say something about us as people? Do you care if they're imitation oak, please? Yeah? Do you care? He was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Come on now. Do you want to see who Jesus is? Do you want to hear about him from a distance or do you want to see who he is? Do you want somebody else to tell you about him or do you want to see for yourself who he is? I couldn't settle for what Cody had to say about him. I couldn't settle for what Charlie had to say. I needed to know. Amen. By the way, everybody in Kenya is related to Barack Obama. Everybody. I met his cousin, his aunt, his uncle. I mean, it was amazing, right? 
Kiowa tribe right next to the Kissy tribe, they actually are building a monument where they say he was born. Okay, this is, this is funny, right? Don't tell Donald Trump or it'll dominate our news for, for months, right? But none of them have met Barack Obama. Now, you'd say you know who Barack Obama is, right? You know how old he is. You know what job he holds. You, you know what job he had before this. You know who his wife is. You know his dog's name. You might know his, his, his kids' names. You, know, you might know everything about Barack Obama, but do you know him? See, because I never sat down with the man. I never had lunch with him. I don't really know at the end of the day how he feels about my life. And he doesn't know how I feel about his. I mean, we, we might know who each other are. He might say, hi, citizen. And I might say, hi, president. But that's not really knowing each other, is it? Do you know Jesus? Come on now. Isn't that a question? Do you, do you know him? What does he think about your inward thoughts? Because the Bible says he judges the motives behind the thought. He not only understands your thoughts, he judges the motives behind. He knows why you think what you think. Do you know why he thinks what he thinks? How much do you love this word? Enough to read it daily? Enough to read it every couple days? Enough to listen to someone else read it twice a week? How much do you love him? Do you know him? Zacchaeus wanted to know him. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Being a short man, he could not. <laughs> is that just his story or is that everybody's story? Without the help of the living God, could you know who Jesus was? Without the grace of the living God, what hope would you have to know who he is? This short man could not. So what did he do? He climbed a sycamore fig tree. He wanted to see who Jesus was. Being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Somehow or another, the Lord used something in your life to let you get a glimpse of Him. He let you show some effort. He let you try to climb on a religious system until you came face to face with Jesus and then He took you further, higher, deeper, better than that religious system. Maybe all you knew was a denominational church as a child. Maybe that church didn't even read the Bible very much, but it was all you knew, so you reached out in it. Did He meet you there? Yes. Come on, what's that next line say? Somebody read it out loud. Oh, we skipped something. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the... Come on now, say that hits the spot. There was a spot. Not, not a place. Not a tree. Not a city. A, a spot where Jesus met him. Come on now. You know, if, if my parents had not had some troubles in their lives, I might never have met Jennifer. If, if Fred and Suzanne had not decided that one high school was too expensive and put their daughter in another high school, I might not have ever met Jennifer. If Jennifer hadn't been dating somebody that, you know, I'm not going to call Satan, but you, whatever. If she hadn't been dating somebody, I might never have met her. If I hadn't been born almost three months early, I might never have met her. There's any number of things that might have prevented our meeting. But there was a spot, a moment in time that was destined. Amen. I looked up and saw green eyes. I know she didn't have green eyes. She was a liar. She had green contacts. And I saw blonde hair. And my heart began to move inside my chest in unnatural ways. I waited for her to speak. Looked into her eyes. 
she asked me if I'd give her boyfriend a ride to school. <laughs> there was a spot where Jesus met Zacchaeus. A specific spot. Come on now, God has ordained not a time period, not a state, not a city, not a household, a specific spot. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Whether or not we obey the Lord is everything. And whatever we obey him in, no matter how small, no matter how silly, no matter how foolish it seems, this makes him our Lord. When Zacchaeus does what Jesus tells him to do, Zacchaeus could have said to Jesus, I'm short, and if I go down there, I won't continue to be able to see you. Everybody would be in my way. He could have said, Lord, you know, it took me a lot of time to climb this tree. I'm partial to it. You know, I got the leaves pushed just right. It's comfortable. But he did. He immediately did what Jesus told him to do. This is a statement of lordship. What in your life is a statement of lordship? What can you say? Not that you believed, but that you did. That showed he is in control of me. Might not be good English, but you'll remember it. He is in control of me. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once. Did you see he must stay at his house? For Jesus, God's will was never optional. It was not, you know, I could go to Ryan's. I could go to Fogo de Chao. Look, I'll make you all hungry. I, I could go to the Vietnamese restaurant. He said, I must go to your house today. Because for Jesus, he was the ultimate example of lordship. There were no maybes. There was what the Lord wanted him to do and everything else. And he only considered what the Lord wanted him to do. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. He heard the will of God. He did the will of God. He began to accept it. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He is going to be the guest of a sinner. That guy was darkness. That guy was dark. How could he go be with him? If this teacher's great, how could he go be with him? This is the mystery of Jesus. He'll associate with you while you're still yucky. Because he'll never leave you that way. Amen. Come on. Is your relationship with your friends elevating the people around you? Or is it pulling them down? You're in a little romantic relationship. Is it glorifying the Lord? Is it Are both of you inspiring each other to go higher? Or is one of you pulling the other back to the earth? This is a question worth asking. What's being displayed in your deeds? But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord. By the way, what's he responding to? He's responding to them muttering about him. But he doesn't respond to them because the only person that's become important to him is Jesus. They're all talking about Him. They're talking about Jesus, but who does He talk to? Jesus. Lord, look Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. In Luke 3, I said, what should we do then? He said, if you have two cloaks, share it. If you have food, give it to somebody who doesn't. If you're a tax collector, don't collect too much. Zacchaeus didn't just hear the last part and say, I won't, I, won't, I won't collect too much anymore. He began to go backwards in his life. He began to make Numbers 5, you ought to write that down, kind of restitution. Numbers 5 says if you've wronged somebody, you add one-fifth to it and pay it back. Did, did he stop there? No, he said, I'll pay back four times the amount. 
sit here and now I give half of everything that I had. Some strains of Judaism taught that it was inappropriate for a man to give more than 20% of his income to anything. That flies in the face of what the king of the Jews said. Which is everything belongs to him. Everything. Look at what Jesus says. He makes a profound statement about a chief sinner. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. How could he say that? Is it because he had seen inside of his heart some mystical thing? No, friends, it's because he could see in his actions. No man would do these things unless something had seriously changed in his heart. And it was credited to him, his righteousness. This is just like our father Abraham. When he set out to Moriah and he raised the knife, the angel said, Now I know that you love me. Because you've not withheld your son, your only son. See, the biblical gospel is demonstrated in deeds. There happen to be some deeds that God praises more than other deeds. Salvation has always been evidenced by doing the work of the Lord. No more so could that ever be demonstrated than with the poor, the widows, and the orphans. Before we begin to look at Paul's missionary journeys, before we drag you through every place in the Bible, let me just start with Galatians 2. Tell me when you're in Galatians 2 in the ninth verse. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. Paul went to set a revelation before the leaders of the known church in his day. It was a revelation that was earth-shaking, a revelation that would affect every Jew's daily life. It affected the entire community of believers. Do we accept Gentiles without requiring them to proselytize themselves as Jews or not? And the only thing that they added to his message was make sure that in all of your working, whatever you do, you continue, not start, continue remembering the poor. This is because this is all Paul's ministry did, was keep the poor in focus. You can listen to me as I read this to save a little time. Paul's whole ministry centered around this activity. He's standing before Felix in Acts 24, 14. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect, as in Judaism. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. We always say that Jesus told Paul to go to Jerusalem, and he did. But why was he going to Jerusalem? He was going to bring an offering. The book of Romans gives us insight. In Romans 15, 25, listen to this. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Every church that Paul planted, he taught that they had an obligation. And their obligation was to the poor. He collected money from the churches he planted for the poor. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. Boy, there's a phrase Americans don't like. They owe 
it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. Come on now, when is that preached in church? We have the gospel light, friends. What we have so often is believe only, do nothing, and we'll all agree that this is good, but you don't feel good. This is why we so often live exactly like the world while attending church regularly. We're looking to may, be made happy by all the same entertainment that they're being made happy by because we don't feel the approval of God's Holy Spirit. But we begin to feel His approval when we move in any direction that He can bless. Anything. And it is always based on sacrifice. It always risks something. Because risk and sacrifice show trust. They show that you believe the Lord. As long as we do exactly what we want to do, where is the trust? Where is the belief? I'd like to show you a couple things in the book of Acts. You write them down. We'll move through them quickly. I'd like to show that notable people in the book of Acts were notable for a reason. How many of you would like to be raised from the dead? <coughs> Look at all those hands went up. Cody, shoot these people. <laughs> I told you faith always risks something. It always you are dead. Which, which one in here do you want to pray for you? <laughs> uh, you want Devin? You want Gabe? Who do you want? You want Renan? Who do you want to pray for you? Come on. It shouldn't matter. You should be able to look around and say, those believers would never let me stay down. We're going to do the will of God together. And they've demonstrated it in their lives. They've never let me go. Well, the woman died. Her name was, yeah, you're going to like this. Why don't we call her Tabitha? Her other name's not so nice. This is in Acts 9. It actually is nice. We've made it ugly. This is Acts 9.36. In Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated is Dorcas. Who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time she became sick and died and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. What is the only thing you know about Tabitha? She died, but she had used her life to do good and to help the poor. Is it any wonder that Peter raised her from the dead? If you died now, would your life be worth raising? If you died right now, what would be worth continuing that you're doing right now? How about that? Have you ever considered that? We talk about resurrection of the dead. Have you ever looked at the people that were raised? The widow of Nain, her son. He was her only hope for a continued employment. Uh, who else? Lazarus. Lazarus carried on the testimony of Jesus. You know how Jesus knew he would carry on the testimony? He was beforehand. Would your life be worth raising? Isn't that a question worth asking? Come on. This woman was doing something that was too important to allow death to stop. So Peter came and raised her from the dead. Acts 10, verse 2. And he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear and said, What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now, according to all the Baptist theology I was taught as a kid, that simply can't happen. That would be adding to the cross. What do you mean your gifts to the poor have come up before God? Are you saying that we can work our way to salvation? It's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying that this man was drawing close to the Lord and showing it by his actions, and God called it a memorial. Amen. Your life's going to speak something, friends. What does it speak? 
Have you ever wondered why this man, out of every other person in the Italian regiment, the Roman army, or the Gentile world, this man was given the honor of being the first one baptized in the Holy Spirit? Well, now we know, don't we? He was a generous man who gave to the poor. Apparently some things are close to the heart of God. Perhaps this is why Proverbs says this. This is Proverbs 19 and verse 17. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. Now, I know that doesn't fit squarely in theology. It almost sounds like you're buying something from God. Friends, the only thing that counts is your acts of love that were prompted by faith. Your faith should produce an obedience. These things don't purchase anything from God. They show the sincerity of your devotion to the Lord. Paul says one time, look, I'm not looking for anything from you. But I want to measure your devotion to the Lord against theirs. Can you imagine if somebody said that in a fundraising setting? Because he did. He said, look, I'm going to compare what you do to theirs just so I have some idea of who's more devoted to the Lord. Isn't that shocking? Now, relax, we're not going to pass a plate today. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm saying that our deeds, Revelation 14 says the deeds of the righteous will echo through an eternity. I know, you thought Maximus said that in a popular Hollywood movie. He stole it from the Bible. Your righteous deeds will echo for an eternity. To understand this biblical worldview, turn with me to Deuteronomy 10. We'll all look at these scriptures together, and I promise they'll touch you. I mean, if your heart can be touched, it's possible to make your heart so callous, nothing will touch you. Then my very best efforts will fall on deaf ears. But at the end of the day, that's up to you, not me. Oh, preacher, you preach good today. Yes, I can explain this all day, Darren, but can I understand it for you? Darren taught me that phrase. He's in the computer business. He said, I can explain this to you, my friend, but I cannot understand it for you. I can preach well, but only you can live it. Somewhere inside of us, something has to raise up that says, oh, I could do that. You have an extra shirt? Find somebody to give it to. Somebody in this church, I don't even remember who it was, that's good, was eating at Jack in a Box. Looked outside and the Lord told them to give a part of their food to somebody outside. Now this is America, that seems ridiculous. Of course he has as much food as he wants. Turned out to be a beautiful testimony. The guy was very hungry and didn't have the money. You know who knew that? The Lord. A member of my family that we pray for regularly. I'm hoping for a revelation of the Lord. The family in front of her in the line to Burger King, never met her, just paid for the meal of the car behind her. It's the only time in her life she said she could definitely say the Lord had done something for her. A meal at Burger King. Right? But it was something. It was pure Christianity. It was a start. You know? There's one church in this town that I saw buy gas for people maybe 10 years ago. That's beautiful. I mean, if it's not a marketing scheme, if it's sincere, it's beautiful because the Lord will honor it. I told you to go to Deuteronomy 10, right? Let's look at 10, verse 14. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, and the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set His affection on your forefathers and loved them, and He chose you their descendants, above all nations as it is today. He chose Israel before He chose anyone else. And then the mystery was that that special election came to you when you called on Jesus. <laughs> That's a beautiful thing. We're people who were not looking for the Lord, but He set His affection on us. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. 
If he says this to his natural children, how much more the adopted children? We have to carve away the competing interest in our hearts. We have to adjust our necks, massage it, so that God can turn your neck to look to see what he wants you to see. We can't continue to do the things we've always done and think that the Lord approves of it. Our lives belong to him. For the Lord your God is God of gods. He's Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Isn't that awesome? Don't you like to hear the words Lord of lords, God of gods, the mighty God? These are all statements about his what? About his character, his attributes. Look at verse 18. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. How does the Lord give someone food and clothing? Does it rain from the sky? Does, does the food, does, does Meals on Wheels show up and Richard Simmons pop out of the heavens and give somebody a deal of meal, right? you got to love a white guy with an afro. That's great. Is that how this happened? How does the Lord defend? How does the Lord feed if He doesn't do it through you? But this is not our natural inclination. So verse 20 says this, Fear the Lord your God and serve Him. Hold fast to Him. Hold fast to Him. It's hard for us. This is not our normal heart condition. This is not the direction that our face wants to turn. It's something that we have to carve away flesh to do. In fact, if you think you're doing good deeds and they don't hurt, then they're not good enough. There has to be sacrifice in it. There has to be risk. There has to be some level of trust or it's not an offering that the Lord can accept because it was safe. And where is the trust, the faith, in safe? My goodness. If you had two cloaks, how many did you give away? That's upward to 50 cent, 50%, isn't it? Now, I'm not looking for a percentage. This is not the point. I'm not even talking about giving to me. I'm certainly not talking about giving to our church. I'll show you in a little while what we did with what you've given, and I'm so proud of you. We spent almost $10,000 on that trip to Kenya. That was 10000 that was unplanned. Look, <laughs> the elders that are responsible for the budget are going to have a heart attack in this meeting. It was 3000 to get there, and then we spent six. You know what we planned for? One. <laughs> How are you going to tell an orphan that he uh, can't eat today? Hmm? Should, I, should I say, you know what? We need to buy chairs. We haven't padded our rears enough. We need to buy chairs. I'm sorry you don't have milk. Should we do that? So you know what? We risked it all. We spent what it cost to run our church for a whole month <laughs> on one week. People that we never met before that week. Because it's the gospel. It's what Jesus would do. Look at Deuteronomy 14. See, if we just turn to the right, it won't feel like I bounced you all over the place. Okay, maybe it will, but you'll love me anyway. 14, look at verse 28. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own and the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows who live in the towns may come and eat and be satisfied. What did the Lord want the widows and the orphans to be able to do? Satisfied. Do you know what they say in Kenya after you've eaten? They ask you, it's the cutest British English I've ever seen. Are you satisfied? They don't ask if you're full. They ask if you are satisfied. And they said that this verse is beginning to roll around my mind. The poor children are concerned with whether the fat, wealthy, white 
American is satisfied. And you know who's supposed to be concerned about being satisfied? I'm supposed to be concerned with whether they're satisfied. When we got there, they were only eating one meal. They got to eat three every day we were there, and we bought a month of provision for them to try to help them get ahead. The only reason we didn't buy a year of provision is because we couldn't. But we should. I mean, how are you going to say no? How do you look at somebody and say, we just don't care that much about your kids? You can only do that when you haven't met them. So it's very important that you get on the foreign mission field and you meet them. Because they're God's children. Can you say amen to that? Yeah. All right, let me throw something in this that's for you, right? They, they call that with them in sales. Look at this next verse. After the word satisfied. And so that the Lord may bless you in all the works of your hands. It seems that there's a relationship between using what God gave you for His purposes and the ability to get more. I'm not teaching the prosperity <laughs> gospel today. I'm telling you that He said when they bring the tithes in so that the Levites, the widow, the alien, the orphans have what they need, God will bless you in the work of your hands. I didn't say that. A Jew in the 16th century B.C. wrote it. And you know what? It's been being proven true in the lives of countless millions every since. Now, if that's why you give, well, then you miss the first part of the message. We give because we trust the Lord. But this is the reality of giving. I'm not appealing to any man's greed here today. I'm telling you that this is the work of the saved. Can you say amen to that? Yeah. Would you like to move on? <laughs> From the ethics of our fathers. This is called the Purikot Avot. These are Jewish writings that exist all the way back to Babylon. And most pious Jews recited them every, every Sabbath together as a family. I want you to hear this. It says, At four periods, pestilence increases. In the fourth year and the seventh year, and in the year after the seventh year, and at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles every year. I know that doesn't make sense to you, but I'll explain it. In the fourth year, because of the neglect of the poor man's tithe. In the third year, you're supposed to bring a special tithe in Israel. A special one. Pestilence always increased in Israel, he says, during the fourth year because they didn't do what God said. He goes on to list each, every feast had associated with it a special offering for the poor. And he said, you can look at our history and see that pestilence increased when we did not remember the poor. Come on now. Why, uh, why is pestilence reigning in our land? Well, because we protect the children? No, our laws allow us to murder. Is it because we remember the poor? No, we think that's the government's job. We'd rather somebody collect welfare than have to help them ourselves. Isn't that strange? I'm not here to beat you down. I actually am pretty proud. We had $9,000 to give to people we never met. That is amazing. Look around you. There's no rich people in here. Of course, we're all rich by their standards. I am so, wait till I show you what you did in Kenya through Judah and I. Is it, if you don't leave here proud, if you don't have that sense of the Lord's approval in your life, then come see me so I can slap you. <laughs> and if you're too big and too powerful for me to slap you, I'll get Renan to slap you. <laughs> Turn it to Deuteronomy 16. 
Deuteronomy 16, here comes verse 9. Count off seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then celebrate the Feast of Weeks, that's Shavuot, friends, or Pentecost, to the Lord your God by giving a free will offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. You go on down, he says it's for the aliens and the fatherless. What is it, what is it in proportion to? What God has done for you. It's in proportion to that. As we move to Deuteronomy 24, this one I would actually like to read. It would be Deuteronomy 24 starting in verse 17. Do not deprive the alien or the fatherless of justice, or take a cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. That is why I command you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field, and you overlook a sheaf, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord may bless you in all your work. Apparently being open-handed, generous, not greedy or stingy, provided an attitude that the Lord could bless. You know, he says that about grapes. He says that about barley. He says that about wheat. He says it about every area of their life. So I want you to take a, a snapshot from the life of, of the average believer in this century then. We got Irma and she's out working in the field, right? Irma's not going to go over her field the second time because whatever there is for the little Moabitess Ruth who might be out in the corners of the field needing to eat. By the way, she's in the lineage of Jesus. Aren't you glad she got to eat? Yeah. Then after she gets the harvest in, a tenth of everything that she brought in, it, it, it goes to the priesthood and the alien and the fatherless and the widow, the poor. And then every third year, there was a special tithing that was just for the alien, the fatherless, the, uh, the widow, the poor, right? Every part of their daily life was about remembering those who were oppressed. Isn't that something? What if every part of our daily life was about remembering those who were oppressed? I'm going to read to you a couple passages. I'm going to read them quickly, but this doesn't mean that you shouldn't write them down or think about them. Psalm 68, it's one you hear all the time, verse 5 and 6. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in His holy dwelling. How does He do that? God sets the lowly in families. He leads forth prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in the sun-scorched land. How is God a father to the fatherless? Well, you have to be their father in His place. How does He take care of orphans? He sets the lonely in families. Maybe, maybe yours. Yeah. Cody, Brandon, is your life better because somebody took you in their house? I can tell you a secret. Mine's better too. Yeah. Do we know each other beforehand? Have you had a pristine, wonderful life beforehand? <laughs> Might somebody have reason to think that I could have woken up and my car not been there? <laughs> Might, Might I have reason to think that you could be rough people? But you know what? They weren't. They weren't. They were in love with the Lord. They just didn't know it yet. <laughs> so they got baptized in water, got baptized in the Holy Ghost. And today they're my sons. How does God become a father to the fatherless? He uses you to do it. Come on. There's, there's a hundred <coughs> scriptures like this, but we feel good calling God that. We just forget that. It's our job. Psalms 10 says this, verse 14, But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. You consider it. You take it in hand. 
The victims commit themselves to you. You're the helper of the fatherless. Well, how is he the helper? Through you. Verse 17 and 18 says, You hear the, the desires, encourage them, and you listen to their cry. You defend the fatherless and the oppressed. How does he defend the oppressed? He does it through you. Maybe one worth turning to is Psalm 146. Psalm 146, let us pick up in verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, the Lord who remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed, and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Come on, when the Lord wanted to display the perfect intent of His law, His Torah, when He wanted to display it in perfect fashion, His Word became flesh, became a human being. In the ministry of Jesus did everything that Psalm 146 just said. Jesus announced His ministry with the words of Isaiah. They're recorded in Luke 14, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Lord always had these things in mind, always had them inside of Him, but He needed somebody to carry it out. And nobody was doing it quite like He wanted. So He stepped down in humanity, and He began to do it Himself in the embodiment of Jesus, the fullness of the deity. Now Jesus, by the Spirit of God, has drafted you to become part of His body. He said, you will do the things I've been doing, yes, even greater things. So is this the work of Jesus or is this the work of every believer? As much as Zacchaeus is your story, Jesus is too. It's the work of every believer. In fact, perusing six, six different uh, chapters in Luke, you, you can get right to the heart of the gospel. In the fourth chapter, he says, the Spirit of the Lord's on me. Uh, to preach the good news to the poor. In the sixth chapter, looking at his disciples in verse 20, he says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. In the seventh chapter, he says, in the 22nd verse, so he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And good news is preached the poor. In Luke 12, he says it this way, do not be afraid, little flock. This is the 32nd verse. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Why did he say fear not, little flock? It's almost like he knew what would prevent us from doing these things is Fear. Fear that we won't have. Fear that if we give, what will happen to us? Fear that if we meet their need, what about our needs? But that's right, church. We are a testimony of those who have been brought from darkness and into light. 
we believe that our Lord meets our needs and it's our job to meet the needs of others or else he's not really our Lord. See, almost every chapter of the, of the Gospel of Luke emphasizes the poor, the oppressed. Isn't that something? Luke 14 says it this way. Verse 13, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Who do you invite over? Who do you feed? Who do you help? Those who need it most. You know why? Because your father has always cared about them. He's a defender of the weak. That's who he is. You want to be like him? Then we need to do what he does. In Luke 18, verse 22, it says, When Jesus heard this, He said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. It's almost like repentance could be proven in your deeds. It's almost like salvation showed up in your daily life as you acted towards other men. Joy, would you put our slide up? This is a real problem. You can see the footnote says from Bible Knowledge Commentary, Old Testament, copyright 1983 and 2000. Then they go on to list a host of other accolades there. This is from a commentary that I read regularly. This is a commentary on Matthew 6.1. They titled it, Rejection of Pharisaical Practices. The Lord then turned from the Pharisees' teaching to examine their hypocritical deeds. We love to demonize people, don't we? Jesus first spoke to the Pharisees' almsgiving. Righteousness is not primarily a matter between a person and others, but between a person and God. This is the embodiment of our theology, friends. Righteousness has nothing to do with how I treat you, Zeke. Righteousness is something, simply something that's between me and God. Let me ask you, is this what the totality of the Bible teaches? Or is this excerpting a particular verse or two out of the culture? It's interesting. Turn with me to Matthew 6 and let's see what Jesus said about that. Since the commentary is on Matthew 6.1, he says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness. These are called zedekah. You know, when we say acts of righteousness, that doesn't really bring it home. But if you reverse the order like it is in Hebrew, they're not acts of righteousness. You know what they are? Righteous acts. They're righteous acts. Be careful not to do your righteous acts. You know what righteous acts were? Prayer, fasting, and giving to the poor. This is universal in the time of Christ. This is what it was. Prayer, fasting, and giving to the poor. Be careful not to do your righteous acts or acts of righteousness, Zedekah, before men to be seen by them. Was he repudiating the Pharisees' giving to the poor? No, all he was doing was repudiating the motive. What we've taken from this is that we don't give to the poor. That what God looks at is the inward expression of our heart and not our deeds. If that is true, then why does Jesus say in verse 2, So when you give to the needy. Why does He say in verse 5, And when you pray. Why does He say in verse 16, And when you fast. He took it for granted that all of these things were going on in our lives. He took it for granted that they would continue. He simply said, do it with the right motive. What is our motive, friends? That we might be doing the work of our Father. That we might be like Him, caring about what He cares about. 
There is a rabbi named Simeon ben Gamaliel. You know, in Hebrew, ben means son of. Who's Gamaliel in the Bible? He was Paul's teacher, right? Had some wisdom in the book of Acts that kept the apostles from catching a beating. Wasn't that great? Gamaliel had a son. His name was Simeon. And Simeon went down in Jewish history saying the world rests on three things. Justice, truth, and peace. And when he said justice, he means acts of righteousness. Zedekah. The world rests on three things. It acts on you acting like God intended you to act. Acting on His behalf in His image. On being truthful with each other. And upon shalom, a right order. I have no idea whether that man ever became a believer as we think of a believer or not. I know his daddy was pretty wise and his daddy's best student wrote most of the New Testament. I think he may have got something right. I'd like to suggest that we revisit a couple popular scriptures in their context based on what you've just heard. This is Isaiah 1, starting in verse 15. You can just listen if you like. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. You're doing wrong. Here's the right things to do. And now listen to what follows it and tell me if it's not written on your grandmother's quilt somewhere. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. There they are red as crimson. They shall be like wool. When can you go reason with the Lord and He wash you from all unrighteousness? When you decide to stop going your own way and start going His way. Isn't that something worth considering? We hear it quoted all the time, but we don't hear the verses before it quoted. I wonder why. James 2.18 simply says, I will show you my faith by what I do. That's a very Jewish concept. We put it on a bumper sticker here and everybody put them on their cars. It's better if the bumper sticker is on our lives, isn't it? Here's two of the most interesting statements in the Bible, and I promise we're going to move on from here, but these are worth hearing. This comes from Exodus 22, verse 22. This is, this is startling. It's startling and scary. Y'all look up and let me know you're with me. Say, I'm with you, Pastor. Okay, because you're going you're gonna to want to hear this and not misquote it. You're, you're going to want to know it. It says, do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Did you hear that? God Himself says He will kill you if you oppress a widow and an orphan. Is that a scripture that people ought to know? Look, we all quote Hebrews says God doesn't change like shifting shadows. We say His promises are yes and amen. Are we really going to say this is an Old Testament vengeful God? Are we going to fall into that trap? Are we going to say that God's character has never changed and this is how He feels about the subject? <coughs> This is how he feels about the subject. Okay, last scripture that I'm going to share with you. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 6. When I said last scripture, I meant it's very close to the last. <laughs> 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Look, I don't pass an offering in our church because I don't want to be associated with those fishers of funds. We don't pass an offering in our church because I don't want anybody to feel compelled. 
We put a box in the back of the room and I have no idea who contributes to it and who doesn't. I get totals at the end of months. Then we review the totals at the end of quarters with elders and we find out how far off of our plan we actually are. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. But listen to how Paul speaks to Timothy about this. Paul says to Timothy in verse 17, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. He didn't say ask them. He didn't say, you know, talk to them. He said command them. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us everything, why? For our enjoyment. What God gave you, a biblically balanced view, is He gave you for your enjoyment. But He tells you what to do with it. Actually, at the feast, He said, give to the aliens and the fatherless in proportion with your income so that your joy may be complete. I didn't read you that verse, but He says it. Look at verse 18. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. The same thing John the Baptist said when we started our message with in Luke 3. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Come on now. I want to tell you that I'm proud of you. You've done this in excellent fashion. I don't say that in some cheap preacher's trick. You know good and well, those of you that come here every week, I almost never do anything except tell you, you can go further. You can work harder. You can push uh, more. And I genuinely feel that way. But in this case, when I look back at what we accomplished so far this year, our little church has given something like $30,000 to missions in the first quarter. That's something. In fact, that's more than we had budgeted for our whole church in the first quarter. And we did. That's something. You know what that shows? Sacrifice. It shows risk. It shows faith. And I don't want to boil it down to money. I want to tell you that in Europe, we're making an impact and are going to continue to. We're going to Romania. We've been to East, former East Germany. I want to tell you that in Asia, we've been to two countries and made a serious impact. Seen orphans fed, widows taken care of, people baptized with the Holy Ghost. We've been to Africa and done all of those things. And we have done it in the first quarter of the year. What could we do if we were completely unified in our purpose and everyone was looking for the chance to go? What could we do? Now, the appropriate way to look at this is that God has called some to pray, some to pay, and some to go. That's true. But I'd like to challenge even that and say, what if everybody got a chance to go at least once? You know, I left out Mexico. I left out South America, which we're also working in regularly, monthly. That's something to be proud of. If we didn't do anything else as a ministry, if we never ordained another pastor, if we never did another wedding, never another baby dedication, never another communion service, never anything else, this quarter is one that I would be proud of. I read, or I'm sorry, was told about a pastor who was preaching and simply sat down and went to be with Jesus. I didn't put a chair on the stage because I'm happy enough today to sit down 
and just go be with Jesus. This is what a Christian life is supposed to look like. This is hitting the mark and obtaining the goal. I want to read to you from 1 John as they get ready to play our video. This is 1 John 3.16 and it is our last scripture. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or with tongue, but with actions and in truth. This then is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and He knows everything. How do you set your hearts at peace? You know that you have cared more about others than yourself. You have sacrificed for their benefit and you share in the work of Christ because of it. Let's play a video and I want to show you what you did. Singera. We're at the home of Opinga Magera Bush, this pastor who is over here uh, to my right, and his wife Catherine, uh, and these are their children from the orphanage. We're standing on their family, has been in their family for some time, and because of some conflict in the region around 2007, there started to be more orphans in the area, and they began taking them in. Their home is behind us, separated girls from boys. These are similar to homes you might see in New Mexico. They're adobe. They're made of mud and uh, have ten roofs. And uh, there's no electricity here. The closest water that we have is, is some walk uh, down into a valley. And the children work by carrying their water and stuff back up here. is a beautiful family. I wanted uh, Pastor Bush to say hello to you and also to his wife uh, for her to say hello. So, uh, Opingo, say hello to LCMF. Hello, brothers and sisters. I love you and we love our brothers, Pastor Eric and his son, Judah. Amen. Yeah. And Catherine, say hello to LCMF. Hello, congregation. We are with you. And children, do y'all have a song or something that you'd like to sing? Wafula tutafurai, kwenda minguni, tukila matunda, ya uzima. Nifura, kwafura, nifura, kwafura, tutafurai, kwenda minguni, tukila matunda, ya uzima. Amen. LCMF, let me ask you a question. When you hear this, you'll be standing in an air-conditioned yeah. church. Inside of a building that is completely weatherproof. 
These children have never even been in a building like that. What is one life worth to you? What, is, what are their lives worth? Our mission is one life, one family, one nation at a time. And when we began preaching this, the Lord had us run into Opinga. And look, He's taken in all of these families and all of these lives. They have in their hands the ability to change Kenya. What you have in your hands is the ability to help affect their lives. typical hillside church. Uh, we're walking to uh, a smaller city where we can get public transportation so that we can then go to a larger city and the roads are uh, wet and muddy perpetually because it rains every day here during April. But this is a very typical hillside on the way to uh, Pastor Maguera's house and it's just such a beautiful area I wanted to show it to you. God bless you. Hello LCMF. During the dry season here in Kenya, the, the orphans suffer with not enough water. And one of the problems is the stream that they use to fill their water buckets is plentiful during the rainy season. But when it's not raining, they sometimes don't have water. 
you have just purchased a 23,000 uh, liter uh, drum and the system to catch rainwater from their roofs. What we're going to do is we're going to fill it now while it's the rainy season so that during the dry season there's more than enough to drink. Come on. Jesus said uh, that if you're thirsty, come to him and drink. Well, in Africa that is taking on literal proportions, uh, literal, literal meaning. The children will be able to come and drink. God bless you all. I, this is the highlight of my life to be here and do these things. Thank you for allowing it. God bless you. So we've gotten the water tank back to the farm and the young boys and girls are taking bricks that we had stored in a field to build a platform to put the tank on and then we'll catch runoff from the roof that is up here and we'll also fill the tank. These two men are cutting the pipe with a hacksaw blade all the way down the middle so that we uh, have more pipe to work with and see if we can see down here Judah and there's 14 little ones while they're all carrying these things uh, coming from the field. Isn't that awesome? Nobody on this farm is lazy. Not, not one person. They're all excited to work. I'm standing in the village of Rionchugu. These people love the living God and they've just been given Bibles in their own language, something that is hard for them to get. I wanted to say thank you for sending me here and let the people of Rionchugu tell you themselves. Thank you.
people there who don't know us and tell them we love them and we want them to come and visit us here and when you go remember to come back Say one love, one love, one family, one nation, one. Come on, one life, one family, one nation at a time. This is how the gospel advances. God bless you. Thank you for sending me here and pray that God give you a chance to come back and meet our new family. Amen. Amen.